Father, we were thinking this morning about the law and the prophets having been fulfilled in, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come to look at this chapter from the prophet Zechariah, uh, we pray that uh, despite the difficult language and strange images that we might be seeing in the passage, that in the midst of it all we would uh, see the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would be encouraged by him and who he is and what he has done. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, the Lord is in uh, the business of, uh, if you like, a clean-up operation. And clean-ups are usually quite time-consuming and labour-intensive, aren't they? You think of things like maybe an oil tanker that's run aground and all that, the havoc and devastation it causes and and how, how long it takes to clean it up or... Perhaps if a chemical plant has polluted a river or, or something, you know, even something as relatively mundane as spring cleaning uh, takes time and it's, it's hard work, isn't it? But in this vision, we see that God is in the business of conducting a clean-up operation and his clean-up is so efficient. Uh, it's, it's both speedy and thorough. Now we've been working through this series of eight visions that, that Zechariah was shown in, in the course of, of one night. And in the first instance, they were to encourage those who had returned from captivity in Babylon. That The message was that Jerusalem would be rebuilt, the temple would be rebuilt and the Lord would return to them to, to comfort them, guard them, protect them and prosper them. But we've also seen, especially perhaps from the third uh, of that series of visions, that this all pointed uh, way beyond that to, to a day when many nations would be joined to the Lord and become his people. And those people... Well, they would be the Jerusalem above. They would be the the spiritual Jerusalem. And you remember we were told that that the Lord said that he would be a wall of fire around them. uh, And he would be the the, the glory uh, within, the glory in their midst. Now, no doubt Zechariah was thrilled by this message uh, that emerged from those first three visions, but perhaps he also had a niggling doubt in the back of his mind, because they'd been sent into captivity in the first place because of sin and rebellion. And how could God now return to them and bless them again? And this fourth vision really highlights that problem and it provides the answer to, to, to the question by telling us about God's amazing clean-up operation. Now we find the account of that fourth vision in, in chapter 3 that uh, Laura read for us. And once again, this vision it is firmly rooted in Zechariah's day. 
but it also pointed forward to something far greater to come in the future. So let's start by noting the scene. You'll notice that we've got alliteration overload tonight. Uh, (laughs) Although I was amused to hear Chris talking to Lewis earlier, and Chris was asking Lewis what all the points had in common, and he he didn't get it. So (laughs) I think alliteration doesn't work with children. (laughs) Anyway, our first S is the scene. Let's see the actual scene that's being painted here. Verse 1 begins... Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Now, Joshua wasn't just a character in the vision. Uh, He really was the the high priest in Zechariah's day. Um, For instance, if you look at Haggai 1, chapter 1, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So, so Joshua was the high priest at, at that time. Jo- Joshua, Joshua was among those who had returned from Babylon, uh, along with Zerubbabel and Haggai and, and Zechariah uh, uh, and all the rest. And at he had been involved in, in starting the work of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Zechariah would have known Joshua. He'd have probably seen him on a regular basis. He'd have spoken with him uh, quite often. So why did Zechariah need to be shown Joshua in a vision? Well, he was being shown Joshua as he'd never seen him before. He was seeing him in his official capacity as high priest, actually standing before the angel of the Lord. Uh, This was Joshua fulfilling the role as high priest. You remember when we were going through Leviticus, not so long ago, um, how, how once a year on the Day of Atonement, after making the necessary sacrifices and sprinkling the blood to make atonement for, for the, the, his own sin and the sins of the people, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies to appear before uh, the, the Lord as a representative of the people. Well, that's what Zechariah was seeing Joshua do in this vision. He'd, he'd made the sac- sacrifices, he'd entered the holy place, and he was standing before the angel of the Lord. And you might say, well, so? But you've got to remember that for 70 years, there had been no temple. For 70 years, there had been no high priest making the sacrifices and entering the temple and appearing before the Lord. So that Zechariah saw this would have been further confirmation to him that the temple would indeed be rebuilt. There would be a place for the high priest to enter. There would be a place for them to make the sacrifices uh, and so on. But the vision goes on to tell us a great deal more than that. Has it sort of struck you that Zechariah was actually seeing what no one else had ever seen, apart from other high priests? Um, 
<coughs> every year the, the people watch the high priest in, 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 in their pure linen garments go into the holy place and there'd be that air of tension that air of anxiety will the sacrifice be accepted will our sins be covered will the, the priest be successful will he return and perhaps if their minds wandered a bit they'd find themselves thinking what's it like in there what what actually goes on and nobody really knew because nobody had ever seen it the high priest went alone no one ever saw what happened until now in a vision (coughs) Zechariah is being given a a glimpse of it and what did he see well what he saw must have come as quite a shock because let's note the, the surprise Continuing in in verse 1, we're told that as Joshua appeared before the angel of the Lord, there was Satan standing at his right-hand side to accuse him. What a shock that must have been to Zechariah. It would have shattered a few illusions, wouldn't it? Who would have imagined that Satan would be there alongside the high priest in the Holy of Holies. Uh, and Satan wasn't merely there, he was levelling accusations at the high priest. Now, that's a, a story that the powers that be would have, wouldn't have wanted the press to get, get hold of, would they? You, know, you, you can imagine the headlines in the Jerusalem Chronicle or, or whatever. You read all about it, Satan accuses high priest in Holy of Holies. High priest on trial. Um... You know, it would be worthy of more column inches than Brexit or Harry and Meghan, wouldn't it? Now, of course, Jesus said that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. So so surely uh, his accusations against the high priest must have been a pack of lies. But as we read on in the vision, we see that Satan didn't need to tell lies in order to accuse Joshua. So the next thing we we see is the sin. Told in verse 3, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. Uh, And it's very clear what the filthy garments represented because in verse 4 we we see that those filthy garments were taken from him. And he was told, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you. So those filthy garments represented his iniquity, his sin. Joshua, the high priest, was as sinful as the people he was representing. Satan's accusations were perfectly true. Joshua wasn't worthy to come before the Lord. And the people weren't worthy to be accepted by the Lord. Uh, And you see see the problem there. Zechariah had been shown visions concerning the the building of of the temple and yet the high priest who would serve in that temple was a sinner. That that seemed to be a a huge flaw in the plan, didn't it? A big fly in the ointment. Uh, And you notice that Joshua remained silent. He he couldn't deny it. He he couldn't offer a word in his defence because it was all too true of him just as it's all too true of all of us. We need a far better 
high priest than Joshua or or any other earthly priest. However, we see that although Joshua couldn't defend himself against Satan's accusations, the Lord defended him despite his sin. Read there in in verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So, so the Lord rebuked Satan twice. Why did the Lord rebuke Satan? Well, notice that this rebuke was coming from the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Now that explains some of the things we've seen in the, the previous visions. Why were we told back in chapter 1 verse 14 that the Lord was exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion? Why were we told in chapter 2 verse 8 that Jerusalem is the apple of his eye? Well here we see that the answer is it's because the Lord had chosen Jerusalem. It was not that Jerusalem had chosen him. It's not that Jerusalem was was worthy of being chosen by him. It was a matter of his sovereign and gracious choice. And that's why the Lord defended Joshua against Satan's accusations but how could he do that how could he defend Joshua after all the accounts were true it it, it almost seems as though he was trying to defend the indefensible well next we see the salvation with the second uh, rebuke the Lord then went on to say is not this a brand plucked from the fire. Now in the context of of Zechariah's day, that would have referred to the fact that Joshua uh, and those he he represented had been set free from captivity uh, and rescued from the judgment that was to come upon Babylon. Who had set them free? Well, the Lord had. Why had he set them free? Because he had chosen them. However, it's also a a, a lovely picture, isn't it, of of the believer in Christ. We are like burning sticks that have been snatched from the fire. We've been set free and rescued from the judgment to come. Who set us free? The Lord. Why? Because he's chosen us in Christ. Apparently, when uh, John Wesley was six years old, he was trapped in a house fire. Uh, and all the other members of the family had been dragged out, and then it was realised that John had been left behind in the blaze. Uh, and some brave neighbours went back, and by standing on one another's shoulders, they were able to reach up and pull him down through an upstairs window. And just as they did, the uh, the whole roof fell in, so it was a a very close escape and a very dramatic event and obviously made a big impression upon the young John Wesley. And later in his life, he had an artist draw a picture of the scene for him. And underneath he put the caption, Is not this a brand plucked from the burning? And he kept that picture uh, until the day he died. Uh, as a reminder, not, not merely of what had happened to him as a boy, but also to remind him of what was true of him 
as a believer in Christ. So Zechariah saw the Lord rebuke Satan. But, but how could the Lord do that after all Satan's accusations were true? Well, the Lord could rebuke Satan because of what he went on to do uh, at the end of verse 4, where we read, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And the emphasis there is very much on the fact that this was the Lord's doing. I have taken it away. The Lord himself saved Joshua from Satan's accusations by taking his sin away. It's not that Joshua's sin wasn't so bad as Satan seemed to be suggesting or or that the Lord decided to turn a blind eye to it and sweep it under the carpet. No, he took it away. And not only that, he then went on to say, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So if, if filthy garments represented Joshua's iniquity, then pure vestments must represent righteousness. He didn't only take away Joshua's sin, but he put righteousness upon him. The message being given to Zechariah was that although the temple would be rebuilt and the high priest would again enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he must look beyond that. An earthly priest is a sinful man. Even though he's made the right sacrifices and sprinkled the blood, his sin remains and he appears before God in filthy garments. The only way his sin can be dealt with is for the Lord himself to take it away. And only he can be, uh, uh, that's the only way he can be worthy to appear before the Lord. Now this vision tells us that the Lord can do that. And that's, that's good to know, that's essential to know, isn't it? Because we all need him to do that for us. But in Zechariah's vision, we're not told how the Lord can do that. But with the benefits of the New Testament, we, we now know how the Lord can do that, don't we? In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we, we read that wonderful verse, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That the Lord Jesus Christ was the one who knew no sin. And God made him to be sin for our sake. He took our sin from us and placed it on Jesus. That's how the Lord takes away sin. And there's no other way of, of taking sin away. And then it goes on to say, so that in him, that's in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's righteousness is then placed on us. We have no righteousness of our own. All we have is the sin that is depicted by the filthy garments. But having taken away those filthy garments, he gives us the righteousness that's depicted in the vision uh, as pure vestments. Zechariah hadn't been shown all that, but it seemed that it must be the Lord himself who takes away sin, and it must be the Lord himself who provides righteousness. And you get the impression that Zechariah is beginning to get the idea uh, and getting a bit excited about it because there in verse 5 you see him actually entering into the vision that's not happened before um, he actually seems to get involved he says let them put a clean turban on his head 
he's getting excited here. The Lord had said he would put rich garments on Joshua, onto Joshua and Zechariah saying, yes, go ahead, do it. That's what's needed. And that is exactly what happened, because in verse 5, continues by saying, so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. So having seen this picture of salvation by removing sin and giving righteousness, we, we next see, see the sequel. Um, we see in verses 6 to 7 that the angel of the Lord gave a, a, a charge from the Lord Almighty to Joshua. Uh, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. The Lord had graciously taken away Joshua's sin and given him righteousness, <coughs> and now he's making it clear that that doesn't mean that Joshua is now free to do as he pleases. The Lord says, walk in my ways and keep my charge. Uh, it's likely that walking my ways is referring to Joshua's personal life, his everyday life. And keep my charge is referring to his priestly duties. Uh, the, the point is that every part of, his li- of the life of the forgiven sinner is to be lived for the Lord and as the Lord pleases. In Romans 6 verse 1, uh, Paul posed the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound. Um, no doubt that was a question that he was often asked uh, when he declared the gospel of salvation by God's grace alone. Uh, and the emphatic, emphatic answer that he gave was by no means. No way. It's, it's unthinkable. It's out of the question. Uh, in Galatians 5 verse 13, Paul said, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You remember when Jesus spoke to the woman who had been caught in adultery. It's in, in John chapter 8. And he challenged her accusers by saying, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, they'd all sheepishly had to to slink away and then he'd asked her has no one condemned you and she'd replied no one lord and jesus then said neither do i condemn you go and from now on sin no more and you see that's always the instruction when anyone's sin is forgiven well don't carry on as you were but walk in the Lord's ways. Keep his charge. The sequel to forgiveness is a new godly way of life. But you notice that the charge to Joshua was prefaced by that little word, if. It's if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge then. And he's saying, if you walk in my ways, there will be good consequences. But that little phrase, if you, That's invariably our undoing, isn't it? As soon as we're dependent on on what we do, we're in trouble. And I've no doubt whatsoever that Joshua 
failed to keep that charge. But the angel of the Lord continued speaking to Joshua and went on to point to the future and to the one who would perfectly keep that charge, the one who would live a perfect life and perfectly fill the role of high priest. So the next thing we see in the vision is the symbolism. Uh, Beginning of verse 8, we read, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. So still the angel of the Lord is saying what the Lord Almighty says. But now you see, he's not only addressing Joshua, he's also speaking to Joshua's friends. Or or the NIV puts that as associates. What does that mean? Well, it's still being emphasised that Joshua is the high priest. So it seems reasonable to take it that his friends or his associates were the other priests. And the Lord went on to say of them, for they are men who are a sign. Or the NIV puts that as men symbolic of things to come. And I think that conveys the meaning quite well. That the real importance of the high priest and the, the rest of the priesthood didn't lie in what they did or didn't do in, in their own day. No, no doubt they, they thought it did, and the people thought it did. And of course, uh, under the Mosaic law, God required it. So in that sense, it, it did matter. But their real importance was symbolic. They were important because of what they represented. And what they represented was yet to come. What did the high priest and the the priesthood represent? What did they symbolise? What were they pointing to? Well, reading on, we see that the Lord said, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now, these terms, my my servants uh, and the branch, uh, they, they should ring some bells, they should resonate, because they're both often used in the Old Testament to refer to the promised Messiah. So, for instance, in Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. It's a messianic term. It's looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just harking back to this morning. It's talked about waiting for his law. You notice that. It's not when he comes, he will reinforce the existing law. No, he's going to bring a law. Uh, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 to 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. So, 
in Zechariah's vision that the Lord was saying that he would bring the Messiah, the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the priesthood was symbolic of him. And it shows uh, to us, doesn't it, that the Messiah would be a priest. In, in fact, he would be the high priest. He really would, as the Lord of hosts said, walk in my ways and keep my charge. And consequently, he shall rule my house and have charge of my courts and be given the right of access among those who are standing there. He would be exalted in glory. He would rule. It's clear that Zechariah was being shown Zechariah, uh, being shown Joshua the high priest because he pointed towards the <coughs> Messiah. That the priesthood and the sacrificial system that they administered were earthly symbols of the Messiah who was to come as the ultimate high priest who would offer the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Now in verse 9, it gets more difficult. The, the symbolism becomes... Uh, quite obscure it says for behold on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes I will engrave its inscription declares the Lord of hosts and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day now you notice that although the servant the branch was yet to come uh, this stone was already there that the Lord spoke of the stone that I have set before Joshua that the stone wasn't yet to come the stone was there in front of Joshua and there are all sorts of suggestions about this stone but given that the vision was to do with the high priest and was at the time at which the temple was being rebuilt I tend to think that in the context of the vision it was the foundation stone of the temple that was being referred to. But of course, that in turn pointed to Christ. You remember back to our Peter series in, in Peter chapter 2, it speaks of him as being uh, the chosen and precious uh, cornerstone, who is the foundation of the spiritual temple, which is made up from believers in Christ, who are referred to as living stones the Lord went on to give a bit more detail about that stone by saying on a single stone with seven eyes or the NIV says there are seven eyes on that stone so you, you notice the emphasis on the fact that it is one particular stone uh, both versions could give the impression that this was a very weird sort of stone a stone that had seven eyes you know sort of a stone that's peering at you and peeping at you and of course strange stuff like that does occur in visions doesn't it or it perhaps could uh, suggest that the eyes were engraved upon it uh, however the the hebrew word that's been used to uh, that's been used to show how these eyes relate to the stone it actually means above or over or upon so the idea isn't that the eyes are part of the stone but that the eyes are looking down upon it you know it's like if someone says um you know i have my eye on you 
Well, you, they don't literally mean that they're sort of rubbing their eyeball up against your arm. Uh, it, you know, it, it doesn't mean that it's physically on you. What they mean is that they're watching you. So the idea is that these eyes were watching over the stone. Why seven eyes? Well, in the Bible, the number seven usually speaks of, of perfection, doesn't it? it if you look to, uh, into Zechariah 4, verse 10, we, we read there, these, are, these seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. So perhaps we're to understand these uh, seven eyes that look down upon the stone to be the eyes of the Lord. And the idea seems to be that, that from the laying of the foundation stone of the temple... The Lord's perfect uh, attention was upon it. He was watching over it and keeping it because it was uh, such a, a crucial part of his purpose to ultimately build a spiritual temple with the Messiah as its foundation. Reading on in verse 9, we find that although the stone itself was already there, something was yet to happen to it uh, in the future. Because the Lord said, I will engrave its inscription. Now, it's not easy to work out exactly what that inscription was to be. But it was part of an event that in Zechariah's day was still in the future uh, when something momentous would happen. Because the Lord went on to add and remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So, so clearly that's what um, the removal of Joshua's sin in the vision had represented. That it was in a single day suggests it was a single one-off removal rather than being a, a gradual process. And remember that the Lord had already said, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. So the engraving on the stone and the removal of sin coincide with the coming of the Messiah. Zechariah had already been shown that the only way that sin could be dealt with was for the Lord to take it away. Earthly priests making animal sacrifices couldn't take away sin. All they could do was symbolise the one who would come, who would take (laughs) away the sin of his people. Zechariah still isn't being told exactly how it would be done but we, we we can now see that it would be the Messiah who would do it uh, we know how the Messiah did it uh, if you look at Hebrews 9 24 to 26 for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The Lord Jesus Christ has taken our sin away by sacrificing himself how we should thank God for that that single day when our Saviour removed our sin by bearing it in his body on the cross. So finally, let's see the shalom 
Now, I have to confess that I've chosen that word to maintain the alliteration. (laughs) 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 But it is quite an an appropriate uh, title, I think. Shalom is the, the Hebrew word, which we don't really have an exact English equivalent of it. It means peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, well-being, tranquility. It's all that kind of good stuff, all, all, all bound up, all, all bound up to one. Now, previously, the, the visions that uh, Zechariah has seen have kind of hinted at a, a time of peace and prosperity, but it hasn't been clear about when that would be. Well, this vision closes in verse 10 by saying, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbour to come under his vine and under his fig tree. I guess we don't relate to that in in Yorkshire, do we? There aren't too many vines and fig trees to to gather around. But it it paints a, a, a lovely picture, doesn't it, of peace and contentment and, and fellowship and, and togetherness. Uh, and we see the Lord de- uh, declares that that will be in that day. It, it refers to a single day, that single day when Jesus took our sin away by bearing it in his body on the cross, that that shalom will be experienced by those who have had their sin taken away, removed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And apart from him, well, there is no true peace. There is no true contentment. There is no true harmony. I just want to close by, by quoting from uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who, who said, Only on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice can anyone properly sit under his vine and fig tree enjoying the blessings of this life. As the last verse of the chapter reminds us, if we are not justified, prosperity is a fatal illusion. It tempts us to believe that all is well when all is not well. It lures us to the fires of hell. It is only when we are justified that we can see these things as having come to us from the hands of God and praise him for them. Amen.